This is Christ Presbyterian Church with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to the School of Discipleship series, Confessional Theology. This multi-part series introduces the doctrines, terminology, and methodology behind our Reformed approach and our communal confession of faith. What is the relationship between God's sovereignty and human free will? What is the relationship between evil and God's supposed good nature? If God is omnipotent, providential, and all-knowing, then he must be aware that evil happens. And if so, what does that say about God? Does God allow evil to pass or does he decree it? What about God's sovereignty? And what about other things like prayer? If everything is predetermined according to God's will, why pray at all? If God is immutable, are we to think that his will could be altered by our prayers? What would be the point of evangelism if God elects his people to be saved? Find out this and more on this episode of Confessional Theology. So we're looking at our at the um, uh, you know the thing. Let's start with a reading. Um, if you'd like, would somebody like to read uh, that first one? Got one version of it here. That helps. Who would like to read section one of God's eternal decree? God for all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. All right, so there it is. I finally got it while he's reading it. If you were trying to look up there, it's there. Um, so let's let's talk about some of that. Um, you know, immediately you notice in that paragraph what um, that that there is uh, the confession is quite mindful of the objections and addresses it right off. And of course, probably the number one objection is. This idea that if God is sovereign, does that mean that God is the author of evil? Um, and um, and notice quickly how this this confession addresses that. It's going to say, uh, one, don't misunderstand us here. God is not the author of sin. Two, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. Um, and three, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Um, now, that's going to be very key, that last line. Um, what do you think's going on there? Um, it, there is a mystery. Remember, we're going to, we, I promised you that, that every one of these chapters will get you to a mystery. And if we don't, then I'm thinking we haven't done our job. Because we are talking about knowing God. And there are going to be aspects of that that just confound the finiteness of our created men, mental ability, Right. But that being said, that's not, gonna, that's not a license for laziness, and we do need to really put our head to it and see what we do derive from Scripture. And, and I think the key thing here is, um, you know, trying to imagine how could it be that God could decree the fall and yet not be guilty of the fall, or decree sin but not be guilty of that sin. And 
this gets into the relationship of, of, of God's sovereignty and human will. But consider this idea, um, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. Now, that is a really heavy statement, but what do you think is being stated there? At the very essence, somehow the idea of human liberty or freedom or free will is now a secondary, we're going to see, cause of sin in a manner that therefore God, while he does not sin, does decree free will that does sin. And, and so we're going to learn that when we were created in Adam, we were not created perfect. I think a lot of people make that mistake and think that we were created perfect or humanity was perfect. There's nothing in scripture that says Adam was perfected. In fact, the whole redemptive history began with the promise that one day you will be made perfect. But this was, he was innocent and there's a difference. I mean, my little granddaughter named, we call her B for Brittany, but you know, B is, is innocent, but she's not perfect. She's incredibly innocent right now. She's probably sinned, but ways that we probably can't detect. Um, at least I can as a grandparent, <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, maybe the parents have, you know, already seen, Oh, that was a temper tantrum. Look at that. She's not, she's not, uh, submitting to our will for her to go to bed right now. I don't know. But, but by and large, she's innocent. And that's about the closest analogy I can get to Adam and Eve. They were created innocent yet with the possibility of sinning because of the freedom of that will. Now, how does it matter that, that God is sovereign, who is transcendent, time, space, cosmology, if you will? God is not a cosmological phenomenon, if you mean by that, of creation. He creates a creature that is of creation free, and yet there is a mystery that that freedom that is in and with creation is not absolute freedom, but relative freedom. Do you know what I mean? Relative to what? Well, relative to my DNA, relative to my experience in nurture. Um, I don't know why Nathan grew, came out of the womb hating squash, but he did. It was never an option when we put squash in his mouth with that little baby jar. And he would pop it out. Now, I don't know. Maybe Lisa ate squash and it got into her placenta and somehow it just got in my head and gave him an upset stomach when he's a baby. I don't know. But there was something about him that he freely chose not to like squash. He doesn't like it. But is he really free? Is he really free? Or is he relatively free? Free relative to whatever his nature is or his nurture. So in, when we speak of human, when we speak of freedom, this is already being introduced here, that it doesn't do violence to the will of the creatures. That is to say that this is not going, this doctrine of decree, according to our confession, we're going to have to get into the scriptures here, but it's not, just know that what they're not saying is that God's the author of sin, or he doesn't sin now. It does not, they don't understand this in a way that it does violence to your freedom of will. And it doesn't do violence to uh, the, this, the liberty or contingency of second causes, i.e. nature-nurture, influencing the will. That's what we just said. And if that's the case, already you should be getting a hint 
that, wow, most people who talk about this topic don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Not, I don't mean that in a mean way. I don't mean like experts. I just mean in the common way of talking about this discussion, they assume that these things would m must get, get, you know, lost. And yet the assumption of Calvin and the assumption of our tradition and the church has been, no, you can hold to this doctrine and still hold to these three you know, statements. So that's important. So the, our difference then is that we do not consider the mystery involved in the sufficient cause for us to deny either the one or the other. Um, we get a hint at how we're going to answer it, though, and I hope you've already heard it. The hint being that, that while I have freedom of will, we learned last week that only God is immutable. Only God is infinite in his perfection and being. Therefore, there is no possibility for God cha to change because there is no reason to change. There's no, nothing there to change because he's already perfect. That's the word perfect, just holistically perfect. So to change would become imperfect if you think about God like that. So God is perfect in his perfections. And, and God is omni in all those things we said, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipowerful. All, 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 all. He's most holy, most wise, most, 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 most. All those words are, are those adjectives are really crucial to the doctrine of God. Because therefore, he, it's impossible for God not to be sovereign. Do you see why? Because to be sovereign, absolutely I should say sovereign, not just any sovereign, but absolutely sovereign, is we may have some sovereignty, but we're created bound sovereignty. A sovereignty bound to my desires of my will, my will bound to all kinds of secondary causes that are related to nature and nurture. So just because a person, you could say to me, does a per if, if I offered then Nathan squash or ice cream, a hundred percent of the time he will choose ice cream. Now would you say he's free? Yes. No. <laughs> I heard yes and no. And they're right. Yes, he is free. Inside the cosmology of creation, he's free. And yet, secondary causes, notwithstanding. Um, certain people have a disposition to certain sins, you could say. I mean, an alcoholic disposition, or say... In our humble opinion, uh, uh, you know, a, a gay disposition, we're going to acknowledge those dispositions, you know, but we're going to acknowledge them as beautiful, just as, uh, and, and let's, not, let's not just so you know what I'm not saying, or or a um, I don't know, a, what's a word for a, for a heterosexual center, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever you want to call it. Fornicator, thank you. Okay, those are all fornications, by the way, and that's what we should. Be. But the point is, you could say that it's not going to bust my bubble for me to learn that that when I was created, um, I had a nature, a nature that has a certain disposition towards good and bad things. Oftentimes, the same thing is can go either way, good or bad. I mean, the disposition that's heterosexual or or homosexual, both are good dispositions, I'm going to argue, with beautiful characteristics that come with them that can be abused. We call it fornication. See what I mean? 
That's very important. And so uh, with that in mind, though, you have a nurture thing, nature thing. And then, of course, you can have experiences. You know, the fact that some people grow up in an environment like this, an environment where at a very young age you're introduced to drugs, maybe, and you become a drug addict. And you're going to say, well, did he or she have a, a will? Did they choose to be a drug addict? You're going to say yes. But you're also going to say yes, but it, he wasn't absolutely free. He wasn't absolutely sovereign of his own life because he or she was responding to what? Either a nurture, nature disposition, maybe, that has a proclivity towards substance abuse, maybe, or perhaps nurture, being around a bunch of kids in the, in, in, in the neighborhood who, who introduced me to drugs at an early age, and off you go. So how do y'all feel about that? Doing good? Is that resolving everything for you? Kind of, right? So we're saying that God is absolutely sovereign, that humans are relatively sovereign relative to creation, nature, and nurture. So that's going to be a huge paragraph. Now you go to chapter, second paragraph. Um, if someone could read that, well, I'll read it real quick. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it, or is that which would come to pass upon such conditions? Now, obviously, this is uh, a response to what some people call four points of uh, 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 four points of Calvinism, or, or what do they call it? Um, I'm just blanking now. Well, it's tulip, but it's not a five point, but it's a four point. Uh, in other words, you take this one. There's an idea that says this. Well, no, God doesn't decree it. God foreknows it. You probably heard that. Trying to save God, we're trying to save God of evil. And we're going to say, no, 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 God doesn't do evil. He knew that it was going to happen. But my problem with that, even on a surface, is that doesn't save God at all. That, that actually, I mean, what kind of God would see it and has the ability to stop it and doesn't? That'd be like saying, yeah, I see the rape that's about to happen down here, but I didn't do anything about it. And I had the power to do it. I don't have no clue how that saves God <laughs> from complicity. In fact, just the opposite. I think it makes it a lot worse. So what we're going to have to learn is that somehow God's decree of what we would describe rightly as evil or what we would describe as tragic, somehow we're going to have to conclude that within the greater scheme of the purpose of, of, of life, that there's a purposefulness in it. We're going to look at that when we talk about providence, so I'm not going to talk. We're going to talk about the problem of suffering in a big way when we go to providence. So let's hold off on too much of that. But that's the point that they're making in the second point. The third point, notice, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. And this is this word, double, are we, is double predestination. Um, there is another version of God's sovereignty that will go like this. That, well, no, God just, he predestines those who will be saved. But he doesn't actually choose people to be unsaved. Now, again, he doesn't make people sin, but he decrees sin. He doesn't, he, he in some ways, yes, he decrees that some will be vessels of wrath, according to Romans 9. And yet he doesn't 
do what they've done or make them do what they've done that is worthy of hell. And there's a mystery. Um, I'm going to give you an analogy in a minute that's going to maybe help, help with this. So let's go back to our website here. Go back to yeah. your statement of the decree of sin. Mm-hmm. He decrees sin, yes. But he doesn't sin. He decrees all things. So what that's going to open up is the possibility that sin, in, a, in, in the great scheme of things, has a purpose somehow in, in that he decrees it, but he does not author it. He does not do it. And so it's sort of a the authority, but there is a mystery here. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. So a decree is is an order, like a sovereign king making a decree, right? So he decrees that there will be sin in the world, yet without sinning. That's the point that they want to make. Let's go back to that first one. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. There it is. Whatsoever comes to pass means whatsoever comes to pass. And that includes the fall. See? Yep. But that's getting into foreknowledge being substituted for decree. Well, you didn't just set it up that way. We're going to say he's he's. Yeah. Well, I, we don't take. I don't have much time, so we got to go. I don't know. I'd have to sit here probably 20 minutes and not try to unpack all that. <laughs> um, I, no, it's fine. I hear you trying to unpack it, and that's good. I like you. You're trying to do that, so don't feel bad for that. I'm just saying, I think I would be misleading you, though, to try to unpack it a little bit. I think there is a... Um, what we're trying to say, we're trying to set, think of the, doing theology like you're going down a road and you're putting, you're putting the, uh, you know, the, the, the rails up on either side. And somewhere in here, and here's the truth, and we're going to describe that truth, but, but, and we're going to do a lot more description if we keep going here, so don't get me wrong, I'm not going to leave you at that hanging, but at the end of the day, what we're going to say is what, part of how we're going to describe truth is describe what it's not. 
And so we're going to say, it, whatever else you believe about a decree, it's not God sinning. Whatever else you believe about a decree, it's not God violating the freedom of the, the human freedom. And whatever else you're going to say about God's decree, it's, it's not going to be, uh, uh, it's not going to annul the, con, con, and that's what I hear you wrestling with in your statement. It's not going to annul the secondary causes of sin. But at the end of the day, I don't want to take away from the absolute authority of God to decree sin. He decrees it. Go ahead, you. Yeah, I, but see, the problem with that, yes, that's what he's done. Yes, he does that. So that would be part of it. It's allowed, but now you just for a moment, and I appreciate it, but just at that point, look at this thing. There's a quote I was going to get you to. Um, Calvin says, and, and he says, there's no distinction between God's will and God's permission. So here's the problem. What, what I don't want is to limit a decree to simply God knows something. And, if, and, and even if you say God allows it, you, that's getting pretty close. But as long as you understand that that is an act of power, not just an act of, of will. I mean, for me to withhold my hand from putting, you know, out of fire is, is close to synonymous, but not quite making a fire. I don't make the fire, but I don't put it out either. Well, I'm a little nervous with that because now God at that moment is not omnipowerful and omnipresent. Somehow he's getting close to a deist God that is up there in the sky watching it and allowing it and not intervening. No, I think God's present. And this is really going to be important. Um, I'm dying to go to the lesson we're going to have in a couple of weeks. But, but when I talk about, when I meet with someone who's going through a tragedy, I don't want to say that God's not present in this tragedy as a counselor. As a biblical counselor, I want to say God is present in this tragedy. When a girl came to me that really happened, a disciple of someone we were discipling at Georgia, and when I was up here playing church about my fifth year, got a call. She had lost now um, her second baby or third, I can't remember. Um, and I mean, she was just going downhill. And she says, I've talked to everybody and no one's helping me. Could you fly down here? I'll fly you down. I just need to talk to somebody. That I trust, and um, and I went down there, and uh, I'll share this later. But uh, and she looked at me right straight in the face, and she said, "Did God kill my child?" I just need to know. Now, what are you gonna say? Now, what are you gonna say? I mean, now I, I'm sitting there going, "Now I have my little black bag called my theology, biblical theology, and I need to reach down in that bag. What am I gonna pull out?" You know what's the what's going to be the the, the truth and the com and, and the way to comfort her. And at the end of the day, um, she is a very bright person. Was really tired of people saying, in effect, God allowed it because that pissed her off. She was about to reject God with that doctrine. If God would allow this, what kind of God is that? I don't want him in my life. So that doctrine of allowing it was putting her in in, in depression. And it should have. She's a smart girl. And she knew darn well what that meant about the moral character of God. So the only answer I could say was, knowing her, and I wouldn't do this normally, I promise, and it certainly wouldn't come out harsh because we'd talked for about an hour before this, but I said, well, yeah. You know, God decreed your child to die. But here's the thing. It's not therefore by chance. 
That's comforting. You're not living in a world where BBs are just ricocheting off of trees and one hit my kid. Because that's a scary world to live in. So the fear, and no, and yet, and, and, and no, God did not, um, God grieves. It's not as though God doesn't grieve the death of your child with you. But that then raises the question. There is some purpose in this that you're, and so I was able to say to her, so what I'm saying to you is that your child was born fearfully and wonderfully and with a purpose. And the, and the passage that you know I read to everyone who has a baby, um, Psalms 139 tells you that there was not one day missed in this child's life. And your, now your, your response to this and ours is going to be to spend the rest of her life figuring out what the purpose of that child's life was and make it work. And she did. And she has proclaimed and shared her testimony to thousands of, of how God, and she now has five kids. <laughs> but, but that's an example where this stuff matters, guys. <laughs> I mean, to do sloppy theology matters, and it's easy in the abstract, but then you're sitting there and you have all these little cliches and all these little sloppinesses that, that are out there, and it's just going to de- devastate people who are going through situations. They needed a surgical application of, 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 of theology. They did not need a roughshod application of theology. And so this is why I, I want to be pre- careful about some of these attempts to walk it back a little bit. No, I'm going to want to say, right out, God decreed um, the fall. And all the curse that came with it, including all these horrific things that we grieve. And yet we're going to say that God grieves it. He laments. He, he cries, as we know with Christ. Um, uh, and yet there's going to be a sense in which we're going we're to see that when we talk about evil, that, that the assumption that evil is, you know, at, at the core, the problem we're having is that that we think of evil as necessarily being uh, what useless or or, or uh, whatever, and and we'll get into that. We'll, just make sure you're here for the providence because we're going to talk about evil and and all that. But for now, I want to move on uh, just because we have a lot more. You're going to get more clarity, I promise, as we go here. So notice something that Hodge does. I'm at number four. I don't know if you've been reading Hodge. I hope you have. It's, he can do some really great clarifications for you. But, but he does distinguish between absolute decree and conditional decree. And what does he mean by that? Anybody read it? But the idea there that, that there is a decree um, that is sort of conditioned on things, and then there's a decree that is absolute. Now, God's, what we're saying is God's decree is absolute. That, that there is a, it transcends a lot of the stuff that gets dirty because it's an absolute transcendent decree. And so here's what this is a nice little way to say it. in paragraphs three and five contain that which many people find most objectionable about our understanding of Scripture. Uh, Professor Van Til, however, was prone to speak of Calvinism as merely more consistent Christianity. That is to say, for him. All Christians affirm that God's sovereignty over creation, that is, that they agree that they are, not, they are men and not dogs because God chose to make us men and not dogs. And almost all affirm his sovereignty over providence, that is, that they would die tomorrow if God has not numbered their days differently. In other words, you see what he's saying so far? We would all affirm God's absolute sovereignty over creation. 
I'm a human because God decreed that I'd be a human. And we would, and not a, not an angel, let's say. We believe that, by the way, about your children when they're born. He decreed them into a church or not into a church. And our baptism reflects that assumption about God. The first active act of God in, your, in a person's life is he decreed their family origin. And that family origin is either of or not of the church. And we think that's significant. Because that is a major first step towards salvation. And that's going to get us towards that doctrine of, of infant baptism. And there are other things that will as well. So here we have a situation where we say, of course God's sovereign over creation. Of course God's sovereign over uh, providence, that all things happen because God decrees that they happen. Why then would we hold off on God's sovereign over our salvation? And so that's what the uh, sections of, of three through five do. This is where we have this idea that no, you know, that there are some who predestined to everlasting life, some who are predestined to everlasting, you know, hell. There's angels, you know, it goes through this, these three categories here, and it's this idea that 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 God's appointed all of this. Now look at number six. As God hath, I'm reading it, as God has appointed the elect unto glory, so has he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Now there's those secondary causes. We're in ministry of word, sacrament, fellowship, prayer. That's what he's talking about there. He, in other words, you're, it's, it's not that you're not, it's not that you're going to be saved. You're going to be saved, but there's going to be a means of grace by which you are going to be saved. So you could say a person's saved because uh, of, of the preaching of the word and the prayer of a mother. And you'd be right in saying that. The cause of their salvation was the word of God being preached faithfully and the prayers of a mother. You can say that. And yet we're going to decree, say that God decreed this person to be saved and therefore in his providence, divine providence, orchestrated the word to come to him and a mother who prayed for him. And so we're going to talk about prayer in a minute, and prayer becomes now a kind of, okay, yes, God is sovereign, and yes, he's sovereignly decreed that I'm going to say, I don't know, get married, but, but that decree is going to get executed through my being led to pray for it in a manner that therefore God gives glory. And I, I, and my intimacy with Christ, with God, grows. So you think about it, there's a greater purpose in life. And see, we look at it as, as humans. But there's a greater purpose in life than the absence of, 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 of good and bad things. What's the ultimate purpose? The ultimate purpose is for God to be glorified. And that's where this doctrine just pushes the button. And it's hard. Because you mean to say, Pastor, that if, it, if, if for God's glory, somehow there must be vessels of wrath, those created for wrath, according to Romans 9? It's in the handout. We're going to have to be able to say there's something so wholly different about God and His glory that yes, humanity is not the center of the purpose. And that's what this, is, this doctrine is doing. It is challenging the, the most fundamental core of our sin, which is what is sin at the end of the day. 
It's to replace God as the center of all things and making us the center of it. And every bit of our wrestling match with this doctrine, if you think about it, it's bringing us back to, well, just stopping for a minute here. What's the purpose of, of, of creation and salvation? Its purpose is to glorify God, not us. And to glorify God in his love and mercy and grace, all three of which would not be love, mercy, and grace except for the possibility of wrath and justice and righteousness. Right? So what is mercy if there is no salvation from something bad? You know, and so there's a sense in which God created the world, and this is the point that Paul makes, and I want us to look at that. Um, let's go back to the, script, the, the handout here. Or I'm on the handout. Um, let's see, it's down here. I'm kind of overhead myself, I think. Uh, let's see here. There's that passage on Romans 9. There's a lot of scripture in here that you're going to get to look at. I hope you have. Let's see here. Nine, nine, yeah. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before him for glory? That single passage, I mean, you can talk around this all day long. But to the end of the day, this passage tells us that there is, there is no such thing as purposeless suffering. There's no such thing as purposeless anything with God. And there is a purpose that transcends all other purposes, and that purpose is God revealing himself. And that would be to say that God is a megalomaniac if he is not 100% God. But if he's really God, if he is really infinite and perfect and all, 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 all and most, 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 most if he's really all of that stuff then he's worthy of that being the ultimate end, telos of everything else that happens and that exists. And this doctrine like no other doctrine pushes that button hard. It says, I cannot ultimately know God and keep myself in the center. I'm going to only know him and truly know him when I know him to be holy, which means set apart from me and all of humanity in his glory so that my being a vessel of wrath is meaningful and purposeful, in, in fact, to the glory of God. And I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it just slaps you in the face and, you know, guys, I'm sorry, but your Bible teaches it. But what does he say? He gives the analogy of the potter and the clay. I mean, all of a sudden we're a lump of clay, <laughs> you know, and he's saying, who are you, oh, lump of clay, to speak back to that which makes you a pot? I mean, that's the, rel that's how serious this thing is. So, uh, wow, you know. I know it's kind of it's kind of intense, isn't it? I mean it is. This is intense. But it gets right to the original sin and what has to get get fixed.
in our in our soul is this idea that I, Preston Graham, it, the the purpose of God is not to to ultimately serve what I think my best interest is. The purpose of God is not ultimately um, to make me, um, you know, to give me immediate gratifications or any of that. Um, it's my purpose is to glorify God, which is to reveal, for me to be an instrument through which God is revealed. That means to glorify. And if that means that I, as an instrument of revealing God, must suffer, then I'll suffer. Now there's a secondary aspect to this glory, and that, remember, is God is relational. And we have all those communicable attributes, we called them last week, versus incommunicable. And that relationship is, think about it, if, if what, how then do I grow in my intimacy with God? Well, it's going to be suffering life with God, living life with God, all of it, and then the means of grace become those aspects. So how does God execute his decree? Well, we're going to call it by the means of grace or the means of, of I guess, judgment too, but the means of grace. What are the means of grace? Prayer, word, sacrament, communion of saints, you know, things like that, right? And think about every one of those. God could have decreed that I get my bicycle or he could decree it, but it's not going to happen until I pray. Why? Because prayer enables me to have fellowship with God in the way in which I get my bicycle. And that's fulfilling my purpose to reveal God as a loving, relational God who desires intimacy with all, his, all of his creation. It's just an amazing story here that's starting to unveil itself. So we're starting to unpack it a little bit. Um, you know, but here's some scriptures, you know, Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, etc., etc. Um, so look at some of these things here that we say here. The word predestined is found in Romans 8, 29, that, you know, and it's in that order of salvation passage. The words elect and election are used 14 times in the New Testament, the idea of God's sovereignty, absolute control and authority over all things related to salvation of sinners is found throughout the Bible. I'll give you a bunch of scripture there. Uh, predestined is not fatalism. It is not the case that some people want to come to Christ but cannot since God has not predestined them. That's a big misunderstanding. We're going to talk about that when we talk about the fall. The fact of the matter is, and we've said this before, but if your notion of predestination is there's someone over there scratching, clawing at the door and the door won't get open because God's over on the other side saying, no, you ain't predestined, then you've got a totally wrong view of this doctrine. Quite the contrary, this doctrine, if you go back to where it was really argued, it was argued between uh, Augustine and Pelagius. And Pelagius, uh, you know, was, was, well, I won't go into the story, but, but basically the whole argument, that, that the, the main argument that Augustine made against Pelagianism, which is against this sovereignty of God aspect and predestination, he wrote a treatise called Against Predestination, and his response was you know, a response to that. And his whole argument would, if you get rid of predestination, there is no grace. Now think about why. Because of the core, what we're saying is that, that my salvation does not depend on me, not even at one link of the chain. And if there's an 
if there is a link in that whole long chain that's got a crack in it, then we know how strong that chain is. It's right as strong as that crack. And that would be your crack. So in Romans, it says those who've been predestined have been, you know, and it goes through that state, that stuff, justified, those sanctified and glorified. So there's this chain, and if that chain doesn't include predestination, but instead it started with human freedom of will or something, absolutely in that case, right there my will is going to be second guessed for the rest of my life. I know I experienced that. I remember when I became a Christian, I pretty quickly began to second guess what I'd done and why I did it. And I mean, I was going through this whole thing. And I mean, not even six months later, and I talked to a guy and he said, well, you know what? Give me your Bible. When did you pray to receive Christ? And he wrote it down, the date. He said, no, every time you, 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 um, you know, start to wonder about whether you're a Christian, just remember that you made that decision. Did that help me? I heard that from many people. It didn't help me a bit. In fact, it hurt even worse because I know my heart. Maybe I was just doing it to kind of get over this problem in my life. Maybe I was doing it because I want to make my friend Foley. Maybe I was doing it because I'm just, you know, as a crutch. Maybe, 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 and I'm still just getting there. Why did I do it? Did I really do it? Did I really mean it? And what would I look for then? Well, if it really was my will, why would I still be struggling with this sin? Because I'm, I'm not willing Jesus every time I sin. I knew that. I mean, I'm, I'm off, man. I'm, I'm, I am done with assurance on that track. But this one says, what? God predestined me. And therefore, the, the, the effect of that is that I want it. That I just want it. I wouldn't want it because there's not a person clawing at the door that wants it. Knock, what? And it'll be open. There's no equivocation. There's no, oh, but except this time. Knock and it's going to be opened. And I, that is such a great promise and comfort to me. If you want it. So when you walk into my study and say, Pastor, I'm not sure that, that I have salvation. Why? Because I just am struggling with this area of sin, and it's really gotten me defeated, and I'm not feeling victory in this sin, and wouldn't I have victory? And all I said, bro, you're sitting in this room wanting it. <laughs> you came to this room because you're not running from it. You're wanting it. And good news, you wouldn't be here except that God elected you from all eternity to want it. And now we're just going to help, help you understand and get you rooted and grounded in your faith so that you understand the nature of that faith such that you can understand why you're still struggling in your sin. Even as you need to continue to persevere in, your, in faith, in repentance and faith. So that's what Augustine, he said on the doctrine of perseverance, not perfection. So there's another uh, book that, that uh, Pelagius wrote, which was on the, on the, on the doctrine of, of perfection or on the something of perfection. And he wrote the response, no, it's not about perfection in order to find your salvation. And your, it's about perseverance. The people who persevere, that's the sign of being elect. You just keep coming back and wanting it. And that's really incredible. There's some people struggling with assurance that that has set them free in this church, I can tell you. And so this is a very important doctrine. But see, now all of a sudden, how is, how, is, how is this working for you guys? How is this doctrine of sovereignty now starting to work? Before we were looking at it as, as all the reasons to be, all the objections and the problems with it. But now all of a sudden we realize that my salvation would not even be salvation. And there could be no assurance. And there would be no grace. 
because really I could now pat myself on the back. I remember the first time I encountered this when I was in ministry at University of Georgia. And I was doing a, a, I had a great vision to establish, you know, Bible studies and all these fraternities because I'd, before I was a Christian and gone through Rush and, and then, then between Rush and that summer and then right before I came to uh, Georgia, I became a Christian at 19 and, uh, or 20, whatever it was. And um, so, okay, I'm going to take Christ to, the, to these places where I've gone through Rush. And, um, and I started this, this, this Bible study in the K Bible study. And there's this guy in that study that I just really connected with and just really loved and appreciated. And we got to be, he was really a cool dude. I'm running with him. That was back when I was doing, trying out for triathlons and I'm doing, tri- and we were doing athletics. We're just, I'm just pouring my life into this guy, trying to see him come to Christ. He never did. And then there's a guy that used to sit there in the Bible study, and he came in there with his shirt tailed down and his blue jeans half off his, you know, back end, and he laid back like this, and he closed his eyes, and he'd say nothing through the whole thing, and he often reeked with beer. And I already just said, that guy's gone. <laughs> you know, he was the first person that became a Christian in, this, in my whole Greek ministry. And ended up marrying a wonderful Christian girl, and everything lived happily ever after. But and I and I remember there was the first time I encountered the reality of predestination. It's like you know, uh, I, I, it's a mystery who gets saved at the end of the day. I can't control it. I'd done everything right, friendship evangelism, you know, we used to call it, and um, and my friend didn't come to Christ. And to, to my knowledge, I'm not sure if he has to this day. And this guy did. So it's just, it's amazing how, how good, this is good news is what I want you to be convinced of. And, and, and so let me kind of hit a couple of issues as we, and then I'm going to open up for some open prayer. Um, we've hit on some of the things with free will, but before we do that, I just want to hit this thing on um, evangelism and prayer. Uh, let's see here. So, so how does the doctrine of predestination encourage evangelism and sanctification? I mean, if, if it's all deterministic and fatalistic and all of that, then why, why pray, right? Or why do evangelism? Well, this is a wonderful response. I think you've probably, if you've been here a while, have heard me reference this because it was very meaningful to me. But it's a, a little controversy that, took, that, that happened across the pond um, back in the 17th, 18th century. And, and um, here it goes like this. John Wesley and his objection to the doctrine of, of, of uh, election. It says, if this be so, election, if there be an election, then all is all preaching vain. It is needless to them that are elected, for they, whether with preaching or without, will infallibly be saved. Therefore, the end of preaching to save souls is void with regard to them. And it is useless to them that they are not elected, for they cannot possibly be saved. They, whether with preaching or without, will infallibly be damned. The end of preaching is therefore void with regard to them likewise so that in either case our preaching is in vain. Now think about the story I just gave you about the K.A. house. George Whitfield's response. Oh dear sir, what kind of reasoning or rather sophistry is this? Hath not God, who hath appointed salvation for a certain number, appointed also the preaching of the words a means to bring them to it? Now do you see what we, we've learned in our confession earlier? That he doesn't annul the secondary causes? That that. The, the, the decree of God is not such that it therefore re- renders as useless or meaningless or any of that those means which God also decreed by which you're going to be saved. So you better preach the gospel because that's the only way you're going to be saved. Even if those who are saved are decreed to be saved. And so notice how he works that out. Does anyone hold election in any other sense? 
And if so, and by the way, I love that because he's, 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 he's breaking down the straw. Beware, when you talk about this issue of cyber, there's a lot of straw men. And you, you need to challenge those of free cyber. Hold it. Who, who said? I did that to you at the beginning of the class, didn't I? I said, well, hold it. Who says all those flags have to be true? And we need to understand in a way that they're not. So here's where he goes. Does anyone hold election in any other sense? I, that's a straw man. And if so, how is preaching needless to them that are elected when the gospel is designed by God himself to be the power of God unto their eternal salvation? And that's kind of like a, yeah, why not think of that moment? And since we know not who are elect and who reprobate, we are to preach promiscuously to all. And I love that. For the word may be useful even to the non-elect in restraining them from much wickedness and sin. However, it is enough to excite to the utmost diligence in preaching and hearing when we consider that by these means, some, even as many as the Lord hath ordained to eternal life, shall certainly be quickened and enabled to believe. And who that attends, especially with reverence and care, can tell, but he may be found of that happy number. It is the doctrine of election that mostly presses me to abound in good works. I am made willing to suffer all things for the elect's sake. This makes me to preach with comfort, knowing because I know salvation does not depend on man's free will, but the Lord makes willing in the day of his power and can make use of me to bring some of his elect home when and where he pleases. Oh, that has been one of the most comforting and powerful dialogues for my ministry as I can possibly point to you. Every time I get up there thinking the, the, the vessel is flawed, uh, you know, this week has proven all the more that I'm a flawed vessel kind of moments. And, oh, I didn't get much time to work on this sermon. And, oh, it's not packaged very well. And, oh, and, you know, and, you know, they got me doing all this organization stuff. I used to spend this much time working on sermons, and now I have just this much time to work on sermons. And it comes out worse. It does. I think I was a better preacher back then than I am now, maybe. But the point being is, it's not about me. I mean, if I would just be faithful, if I'll do my exegesis, and if I will just be faithful to Scripture, in other words, what is preaching? It's giving people a sense as to what it means. It's really all it is. So if I will be faithful to do my home, the work that must get done, which is make sure that what I'm saying is from the Scripture being said, if I can get to that, I could walk up there with zero packaging and have every confidence that the Scripture is powerful under salvation, and if they get to understand it, all the work of the Holy Spirit is sufficient to enable this person to believe it. Isn't that encouraging? And that should encourage you as, as witnesses. I mean, I hope that, it, I, I can't think of anything that should embolden you more to be bold witnesses in your world and in your life in this doctrine. I can't think of one thing that should make you more bold. Because you know, one, I don't care how well you say it, if they're not elect, they're not going to believe it. And you know what, and, and, and you're not going to be embarrassed because sadly, they're not going to be there with you anyway. But there are those who are destined to be there, and I don't care how, how you flub it, they're going to get there through you if you're going to be faithful to witness to Christ. God can use you. And by the way, being a witness is not being a teacher or a professor or a pastor. It's just telling people what you have experienced and, and, uh, and know to be true for your salvation. And so it, this is an incredible doctrine that is often used 
and, and a false understanding because, it, again, it diminishes secondary causes of this kind. But no, why would it be any less sovereign of God to decree that there'd be a means by which people would be saved that includes those things that get, brings and builds a relationship with God? Preaching, teaching, community, prayer, etc. That's just the way he does it. Same thing with prayer. Um, look at the, uh, I think this is down here. Uh, there's a whole lot in this, this thing applied to prayer. But here's, you know, the Charles Spurgeon quote is a great quote. And um, basically he's going to say, man, you're an idiot if you don't pray. <laughs> I mean, it is well said that asking is the rule of the kingdom. And it is. It's a decreed rule. And it is a rule that will never be altered in anybody's case. Um, I've been reading this work called Disruptive Prayer. and We've been doing it in our, our men's Bible study. Uh, uh, and it, it, it really is amazing at this state of my life in ministry how, how surprised I was about how much Jesus prays. Almost every major, really every major event is initiated with him praying. Whether it's, I mean, it's just prayers everywhere. You know, and, and even when the, when the crowds would come and mob him and there was all this great excitement, um, Jesus would do exactly the opposite. Man, when the mobs, if, if this church, if we start seeing revival and the city starts flocking in this church, you know what I'm going to do? Oh, I know what I'd do. No, and so unfortunately, oh, I'd get busy. You know, I'd, I'd be visiting and I mean, I'm going to work my head off. I'm going to be excited, man. The Lord's working. That's what I'm going to do. And then what does Jesus do? The crowd's come and he pulls the heck out of Dodge and says, I got to go pray. <laughs> I mean, you just can't get around it. I mean, he gives this little thing. You see the quote, God will bless Elijah and retain rain on Israel, but now must pray for it. If the chosen nation is to prosper, Samuel must plead for it. If the Jews are to be delivered, Daniel must intercede for it. I mean, if you don't pray, you're just downright stupid. <laughs> I don't mean to say things so harsh, but. It kind of makes the point, doesn't it? That's the point. In other words, there's a pragmatic aspect. Whatever you, it is a rule of the kingdom of God that you must pray and you get because, and you, you receive because you pray. But does that mean we are sovereign over God? Does that mean now that, oh, God's up there and we are manipulating God through my prayers? How are we going to pray? Oh man, if you think you're sovereign and that prayer is somehow changing God's mind, oh, prayer is going to be one of the most onerous and most horrible experiences in your life, you're, it's going to become a work, wouldn't it? It's going to be something you're going to do and, oh, i got to say it. i got to say it in these profound words. And, oh, I'm going to have to bleed a little bit, so let me hit my knees and let, let's get as uncomfortable as I can. Maybe that'll get God's, you know, affection for me here. And we're just going to do everything we can do to work God in our prayer. That would be one way to look at sovereignty my sovereignty now trying to change God. But there's another way to look at it. And this is a guy named B.M. Palmer, one of the best books I've ever read on prayer because it's, a, it's all Christology. It's a Christology, really. But here's the way he wants to put it. And this is heavy. Okay, get your head around this. It's going to be heavy. He said, is the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man that, that prevails. But what renders prayer effectual? Okay? Is it how how Long and hard? Not necessarily. Not its length, nor its vehemence, nor its eloquence, nor its passion. I don't know about you, but I struggle with prayer. 
and I struggle with prayer because I honestly have struggled to understand what makes prayer effectual. And all of a sudden, it gets very, very works-oriented. So here's what he says. He goes through those things, ignores it, da-da-da-da-da. But it is simply the living sympathy which is established between the soul pleading in the closet and the Savior interceding in the heavens. In other words, what makes my prayer effectual? Not me, but Christ. There's a passage in Hebrews, remember where he says he, he offers his own blood as to gain the sympathy of the Father for me. It's Christ. It's why we pray in his name. It's Christ's sympathy that then gets the Father's sympathy in our prayers. And so he goes on to say, he takes the desires which are in the heart of Jesus Christ. This is secured through the intervention of the divine spirit. Remember, there's that passage in Romans that the spirit intercedes for those with words beyond comprehension or whatever it is. I, I take that not to mean that he speaks a heavenly language, by the way. Uh, he's up there going, you know, because that's the language they speak in heaven. I take what he's saying there is that what we pray for often, I think our prayers are always answered yes, and most of the yeses are probably on the surface no's. Can you unpack that riddle? God, get me into this school. God, get me this job. God, do this, do that, do this. And many of those prayers that I have prayed over the years been answered no. But as I mature and grow in Christ, and as I understand Scripture, I begin to realize no, He answered yes. Because He, the Spirit, with words that I don't use, prays my prayer through the advocacy of Christ interceding for me to the Father. And that prayer is what Preston's looking for is is greater uh, self-worth. And I know that getting him into college of his choice might not do that. Or maybe what God is, what pray, Preston's praying for is he's lonely. And I'm going to answer that prayer by drawing him closer to me. You know, what God's really, what Preston's really praying for here is, you can see where this goes. You know, and, and I find that, that most of the time in my humble experience, um, what I'm praying for is not what would answer my real heartfelt prayer that I'm not even in touch with half the time. So there we have the sovereignty of God. Think about what's happening here, where God has decreed all things whatsoever that comes to pass, including the answers to my prayers, but, but I must pray for it. And yet when I pray for it, there's a sovereignty of God acting with the hope work of the Spirit that makes sure that what I'm really praying for, but not knowing I'm praying for, is the answer to my prayer. And, it, and, it, and it's all driven towards two things, the glorification of God and enmity between God and, his cre- and us. I will, by the way he decrees things, I can be assured that God's decree is going to accomplish two things. One, his glory to our intimacy with him. And that's how it's going to work. Our salvation and saving intimacy with him. 
And so look at how he goes. He takes the desires which are in the heart of Jesus Christ, works them, and what are the hearts of Jesus Christ? Well, it's our salvation and all those things which intimacy with him. And our hearts so that they become our desires. He takes the pleas which is upon the lips of the great advocate above, Jesus Christ, and seals it upon our lips as our prayer in Christ's blessed name. It is this sweet but secret correspondence between our head and ourselves that makes true prayer at all. And aside from this, all is mere posture in the mutter of incantations. I love that. His work consists in bringing the intercession of our Lord above into the desires and petitions of the Christian below, whereby they become the intercessions of the Spirit, who this blends his advocacy with that of Christ himself. There's another passage here that we'll talk about this, but basically he, he calls a prayer the antecedent condition to the sovereign grace of God in our lives. The antecedent condition. Now what does antecedent mean? It means, it is a, it's a rule of the kingdom, as, as Spurgeon says, but it's, it's, a, it's something that God does. We're, we are praying as a uh, prior to the answer of that prayer, but the praying itself is an act of God's answering our prayer before it's been prayed. So God is answering prayer even when we pray, even though we don't, you know, and because he moved us to pray as part of the, the, the order of how it is that he's decreeing his, his, his mercy upon my life. And so this has changed my life with prayer, by the way. I mean, I think when Paul says pray without ceasing, I don't think that means that I'm sitting down on my knees and I'm going through the lectionary prayer, though that's maybe a good discipline to have, or having a quiet time every morning, or having a quiet time all day, or whatever. I really do think prayer, if I could really understand this, is just talking to God all the time. Really, just talking to God all the time. And, and just talking and just bringing my, my heart to him all the time and listening and, you know, and, and I, I, I can, you know, and there's a sense in which I understand a little bit about that. I do find that, you know, we have that happening in my life more. I struggle with the discipline of prayer. I don't find myself struggling very much, though, with just talking to God. I mean, this is happening all day. And it's kind of fun. It's a connection, but it's an intimacy. But, but it's, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think there is a, a, a discipline of prayer, like worship. That's what we call it, a prayer service. The house of prayer. We come to pray. And if you think, every movement in our service is a prayer movement. Different kind of prayer, but it's a prayer movement. So we, we, prayer can be organized. Prayer can be structured after a biblical pattern of how we approach God. And we've tried to do that in your, quote, prayer you know, uh, in your community groups, we've, we've been trying, I've been trying to push that with you guys at some resistance, but don't just go there and start talking intercessions. Go through the pattern of how it is to approach a God. We start in praise, we move in, into confession, and, and we let him speak into us the grace of the gospel, and then we start interceding. You see, because they're in, some people used to call it acts. You know, it's, it's a it's a basic foundational principle. Okay, I'm going to have to stop. We didn't get into the handout per se of the of the freedom of the will. Uh, you should look at it. It's pretty amazing, um, and there's some good stuff in there. But um, open up for about ten minutes of questions, just conversation. Anything you want to talk about? Of the sovereign grace of God revealed, I guess, or executed. But it's the antecedent condition idea. That God is decreed that I get a bicycle, and that decree is is
first discerned as I'm praying for a bicycle. And yet, without praying for the bicycle, I don't get the intimacy with the bicycle. And he wants that. <laughs> You're looking at me like, Julie, you have that funny look on your face. <laughs> You're thinking, I like it. What would we learn today? Well, what I would learn is it's the rule of the kingdom. Pray. God answers prayers. God moves mountains through prayers. It is a means of grace. It is, it is a secondary cause of why someone gets saved. It's not the first cause. The first cause is divine election. But it's the secondary cause. And, it's a, and in this life, in this temporal world of ours, see, that election causes outside of time and space event. That took place before I was even born. But what we're doing and participating in is not the outside of time and space event of God and his actions. We're taking part in the in time and space actions of God, which prayer is aspect of those actions. And we're participating with God in that respect. So pray. But you're right. At the end of the day, um, what we're ultimately praying for is God to be glorified. And, and for there to be a revelation of his mercy and grace in a manner that, that, that fully glorifies him, which includes that there are some who are vessels of wrath. So I can't sit here in good faith and tell you that praying for someone you love to be saved is an infallible prayer. You know, but on the other hand, I can say pray for someone who is, needs to be saved because God answers prayer. And at some point, that's where the mystery comes. There's an illustration in here um, that uh, I think it was Van Til. No, boy, read, by the way, I, I wish so badly we had more time, but read, go through this and look at, you know, Martin Luther wrote a book, very, very difficult. Now, Martin Luther is not easy to read. He is really hard to read. Um, I mean, he is one of the hardest people I know to read. And The Bondage of the Will is probably one of the hardest things I've ever read. But you got a couple of quotes from it, <laughs> and um, and it's uh, you ought to read that about free will. So make sure you look at that. I give you some of Luther's thoughts, but Luther has some pretty amazing stuff in relating free will as a secondary cause to God's ultimate divine will, and it, it gets it, it, it'll help you work through some stuff here. Even though it, so, when you come back next time, I'll, I'll let you we'll, we'll let you give. We're going to talk about providence, which is kind of a part two of this conversation a little bit. So being some, bring your questions about this, okay? Go home, reflect on the rest of this handout, write in red letters some questions, and I'll be happy for the first part of our meeting to just start off with those questions, okay? But that being said, leave you with an analogy. Um, uh, you know, who, who did this analogy? I think it was Van Til or somebody. But, um, but just think of, you know, think of you got these two ropes hanging down off the ceiling. And, um, and you know, and from our vantage point, there's just two ropes hanging down off the ceiling. And I want to climb up, uh, you know, climb up the, 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 the rope or whatever. Or I'm going to pick the rope. I'm going to climb it, right? But what I don't realize is if I pick up this rope and start climbing, up above the ceiling, it's really one rope. And they're just looping down like this. And they're sitting on a pulley. And you just got a rope. And so when I start pulling this one, I don't go anywhere because it's going up. Right? The other side. 
And so I go, so we have to kind of pull on both of them. And in some ways, that's the, the analogy that is stupid, okay? But, but it just, that, that's what we're saying. There is, there is a sense in which, in the words of, of Packer, there's an antinomy here. That, that while we can't, in our time and space under the ceiling, truly comprehend the mystery of God's sovereignty and human will, we know that they both are real. And they are attached to each, but they're not just real in the sense there's two separate ropes. They are attached to each other. They are consistent with each other. The rope is no less the rope, but they have these two parts to the rope. And so we work them both. We, we pray this side of the rope, even as we trust God and his sovereignty on this side of the rope. And we walk to God that, up to the heavens with that sort of rope, if you will. I don't know if that helps you, but it's just, um, there's just no way around it, the both andness of this doctrine. There is a both and. I do think I've qualified it for you, though, to, to summarize, that, that we are not absolutely free. We are relatively free. Whereas God, outside of time and space conditions, is absolutely free. Contingent on nothing. And that's the difference. So I will choose ice cream 100% of the time over squash. But I would, somehow I do that because my choice is conditioned by my nature and or my nurture. God has no beginning and end like I do. Got any other question or thoughts? That's good. You can worship God with your mind, contrary to popular. Uh, I'm I'll encourage you to go back and read that Palmer quote on prayer, that because he does a good job of giving you what a biblical theology of prayer, right in that little short paragraph. Where remember, when you pray. It, 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 it's initiated by God that you're praying, and when God initiates it, he brings the whole force of the Trinity into this prayer. You've got the Holy Spirit now praying what really you're praying. You, you've got the, 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 uh, the sympathy of Christ now putting his blood at the cross, uh, at the throne room of God the Father, interceding for you, making sure that the sympathy of Christ for your prayer is the one that's going to be executed, and you've got the power of God the Father who is going to who, who or, you know, does all, decrees all things whatsoever that comes to pass. And so there's a real sense in which when you pray to the Father in the name of the, of the, of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, you've got the whole Trinity working on you here. That's pretty amazing. And, and it's all drawing us in intimacy to Him and glory. But the, so the, just that, you can reflect on that, and there's some scriptures that I put in there that you can look at that reflect on that. But yeah, prayer is a big issue. And I hope you're emboldened with evangelism after this. Man, it's, you know, it really is incredible to know that the grace of God as revealed through Scripture is irresistible if they are elect. God makes it irresistible. They will, they can't, now, don't be wrong, just because you share your faith doesn't mean they're going to pray to receive Christ right there. But it's amazing how many times, I, over the years, people have come to me and 
told me well after the fact that that sermon had this impact in their life and it didn't that day but it did later so it works yeah There's a purposefulness in Dan's death. It's not just this chaotic world where it happened, even though it might, the circumstance is pretty chaotic, if you could call it an accident. But, but you're right. There's something, this, this doctrine, if I've done anything, I pray to God, you, you now can say, that is really good news, Preston. That is really good news. You know, there is no purposeless event in your life. None. Everything that happens, happens for a purpose. A cliche that's true. And and there and, and we know the purpose to be good, as related to the to the glory of God being revealed, and the intimacy of salvation being experience being executed. So. Some of those we will see. That's right. Some of we won't. That's right. So let's close in prayer, Father. Just. Uh, we are in awe. We hardly know how to pray. But Lord, we pray because we know you are sovereign, that you decree all things whatsoever that come to pass, and that you choose to do so in a manner that draws us near to you in prayer. Uh, you choose to do so in a manner that draws us near to you through Scripture through the fellowship of the communion of saints, through worship, we know, Lord, that your sovereignty is, is robust and full in a way that, that includes these very means of grace that we participate in by your grace given to us. So, Father, help us to believe in you more and help us to trust you and make us bolder as witnesses, make us more fervent in our prayer, prayer life, and mostly just help us to, to reorient that we aren't the center of things, that you are. You, you alone are worthy. You are worthy even to the decree that would, that would make some vessels of wrath. Help us, Father, to believe and to trust even as we confess that we are natural sympathies find it hard to want to believe some of that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I do want to close actually one thing before I walk up there. Um, I just thought of while I was praying. I want us to make sure we don't miss the last oh, I already took it apart. No good. Is it up there? Yeah. Um, I don't want to miss this last uh, number eight. You see that right there? See that? This is something that I think needs to be said whenever we do this and so I've meant to do it. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. You see the purpose of this ultimately? That was our assurance, right? 
So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Um, if you hear this doctrine being taught in a way that doesn't move you to that end, a kind of place of humility, of grace, of th- thankfulness, in other words, they are aware that maybe one of the most dangerous people in the world is a converted Calvinist. Um, with this doctrine hardly, barely understood, they go out and, and, and separate people by it. And it's just the opposite. I mean, what I should feel right now, and you should feel, is just the utter, un, just the utter humility that I had nothing to do with my salvation, that I'm wholly and fully dependent on God for it, and everything else in my life, and it just it must move me to a place of humble humility that then wants me to put myself at His mercy. Just say, you know, and and so and and it and it unites me with you, my brothers and sisters, to know that my Father chose you for me, and me for you. You know, there's something. Everything about this doctrine is beautiful, if we can just get our heads around it. You know, in the way that it's meant to be. But when we use it as a matter of controversy. You know, in these hyper sort of, you know, anti-free will, anti-fatalism. I mean, we just botched the whole thing up, you know. So, so just that's a nice little way to conclude. Remember that this, this is what this doctrine will produce in us if we understand. Because it is God we're talking about. Thanks for listening to the School of Discipleship. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked the show, please consider a five-star rating. Share it with your friends or write to us. For this episode's show notes, visit our website. Until next time, this is CPC Podcasts.